I have to, something really important that I'm going to teach this morning. We are going to take a, a, a one-week respite from the book of Hebrews. Um, this is something that Matt and I and Kevin have been dialoguing about probably the last two to three months that I want to bring to you and teach you this morning. I'm going to actually unpack a term that you've probably never heard. Maybe some of you have heard it before. It is a term that you will not find in your Bibles, just like you don't find the word Trinity in your Bible. You find the concept, obviously, clearly in the Bible. This is a, a term, uh, a concept that I also believe is of great importance to understand, especially in the days we're living. And you will not find the term in the Bible per se, but I'm going to explain it to you and, and biblically give you reason to know that it is valid. Let me just give you a little bit of context um, as we begin. The last five months have been incredibly difficult for everyone, obviously, and uh, we've all processed it differently depending on what we've been experiencing and how we view it. Uh, in my own trek, uh, I have gone from uh, um, kind of from a uh, interesting, like to watch what's happening, to confusion, to frustration, and then back and forth from all of those at various times, as I'm sure you have as well. But everything that I do, and I know other uh, elders in our church we do, is that we process everything through the lenses of our responsibility as leaders and as elders. So when I'm thinking and when I'm praying and when I'm feeling something, I'm not just thinking about it for myself and my family, which obviously I do, but I also think about it as a leader for the church. What is God saying? Lord, what are you doing? And let me just say that through this whole five months now, it's been five months of this COVID experience and then now other things taking place in society we have never wavered from the belief that God was in control and our confidence is in God. So there has never been a moment where we have wondered, are things out of control? Uh, are things unraveling and, and, and who knows how they would ever end? That's never been in my mind or in your minds, I'm hoping, as well. In fact, we've even addressed that from the pulpit as we have taught on the providence of God, on the sovereignty of God, and so on. I also want to say before I get into some of the challenges that we're facing today, that this is a time of great potential for the gospel. In fact, I really believe that what's happening now is something that we've probably been praying for for many years. We just didn't know that it would happen this way, that God would open the eyes of people, that people would become uncomfortable, that people would become uh, questioning of what, in fact, was happening in the world around them and be driven to search out the truth of Jesus Christ. So there is great potential in all of this for the gospel. So that is a, a positive uh, truth that we need to hold to as well. But I've also been seeing, and this is what I want to look at today, there has been a lack of agreement in the church at large as to how to proceed, how to deal with this, what to do with it, based on what is being mandated by governors and by states and by cities and by local uh, leaders and health and so on. And so, and it's changed from week to week almost. 
And it's been a challenge as a leader, probably one of the greatest challenges we've faced in how to discern what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And much of it has fallen on Matt, and he's done a good job in processing it, an excellent job in processing it. And he's had me whispering in one ear and Kevin in another ear and me sending him an article, read this and think about this and so on and so on and so on. And he will ask us, what do you think we should do? And we would meet with our wives and we would talk and pray and try to decide what to do. But always, the preeminent desire of our heart is to be obedient to God, to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit has been saying for us as a church to do. And there are so many layers to, there are legal issues, there are constitutional issues, there are health issues, there are conscience issues of individuals in the church. There are shepherding issues, all of them overlapping and overlaid that we have had to discern. And so for me, I was, was driven by the Lord to begin to study and think about some things that I have never thought of before. And I'm going to unpack for you today the term Sphere authority. Sphere authority. What does it mean? What, what is it? And why is it important? And I want to say to you as we begin today that it is of paramount importance. I truly believe in understanding it. The text that has been uh, bantered and round and thrown around and argued around and quoted around is Romans 13, if you turn there with me. Romans 13. Verses 1 through 7, I'm going to read this, and then I'll pray, and then I'm going to try to get this finished in an expedient way. I have a lot to say, though, and so you're going to have to put on your thinking caps today, too. You're going to have to listen and, and think, which is obviously a good thing. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Father, today in the name of Jesus, I stand before you, we are before you as a church. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us today the essential nature of the church in the world that the church is not non-essential, but, Lord, in fact, the opposite. It, it is of 
probably the greatest importance, especially in days like this that we live in. But, Lord, we want to be led not by emotion and not by politics and not by good intention, but we want to be led by truth and by you. So speak to us today and teach us today. In the name of Jesus, Father, amen. So I, as I've studied and as I've thought about this and as I've debated, not debated so much, dialogued with other leaders, and there's been, trust me, a lot of that that I've done with other leaders that I respect. This verse, verse 1 of Romans, and then a like verse, and I'm not going to have you turn to it, but it's similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 1 Peter 2, 13. If you take these two verses alone, it would seem that they're sufficient to tell us to just do whatever the state or the governor or whomever is in authority over us in, a, in that sense tells us to do until they tell us something different. It should be enough then just to take those verses, Romans 13, 1, 1 Peter 2, 13, and they would be enough to answer or to squelch any question we would have about what the church should be doing in these times regarding the coronavirus and the orders and mandates that have been given to us by the state. But there's a verse that follows, it's a sentence that follows in Romans 13.1 that to me is the most important point of all that Paul says. And it is this, if you would look at it again, Romans 13.1 the second part of verse 1, he says, For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There is no authority except for God. Importantly, the word instituted and the Greek word for that word instituted means to arrange in an orderly manner and to assign to a certain position to a point and to determine. So what Paul is teaching us is that God is the sovereign one over every institution. All are under God, and all have been put where they are in order to keep order and by God's determination for the well-being of his creation. Paul's point is very clear. And it cannot be ignored when we talk about these things, that there is no authority except that which is from God, and that any authority that is being exercised should be done according to that which God has appointed, and only to which God has appointed. Now, as is true in all of Scripture, to understand a principle, you would always be able to go back to the book of Genesis to find out its purpose and its origin. And I want to say to you that what I'm teaching today is a creational principle as well. God created all things seen and unseen, we know. And then he placed the authority, listen to the words, the authority, the right, the power uh, to rule over creation, he gave that to man. Now we know that it, this was to be a benevolent rule. It was to be a rule that man would exercise with kindness, that he would rule over the creation of God with kindness, to protect it, to nurture it, to care for it, to keep order in the creation of God. Don't miss that word. 
to keep order. Genesis 1.28 describes this as a subduing. To subjugate is the word that God uses in Genesis 1.28. To have dominion of rule. Again, which means to subjugate or to prevail over creation. Of course, we know that in chapter 3, everything changed with the fall. But not, and not only did man fall, but all of creation fell. And listen now, listen carefully. And then all of creation was subjugated to sin's consequence. So where initially creation was to be subjugated to man's benevolent rule, because of the fall, then it became subjugated to the consequence of sin. And the, the Genesis account is clear. It reveals the history of man and the history of the world after the fall. Very quickly, we find it, uh, it it's recorded through the book of Genesis that, that man's treks, man's travails, resulting in disharmony and alienation, rebellion against God, rebellion against a godly authority, Cain rebelling initially and all, all right away, man's pride and man's independence becoming dominant, coming to the forefront. And as early as, as that beginning chapters, we find murder, we find sexual sin, all of the consequences of what took place because of the fall. And then interestingly, also as early as chapter 4, now listen carefully, the first cities were established. Cain establishes the first city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. So Genesis tells us in chapter 4 that the first city ever established, and Cain said, I am now destined, listen, to be a wanderer, to wander the earth. And as he wandered, as he was put out of the presence of God, and after he had murdered his brother, he was sent to wandering, he then began his trek, and he ended up establishing a city that he named after his son Enoch. And so we can conclude then after this, and we find Nimrod then establishing many cities, including the city of Babel that God ends up pulling down and knocking down. But we see then cities are established throughout the world by wandering violent men, many of them, yet necessitating, listen carefully, government. The need to be governed in order for there to be anything but just simple chaos. So now we have at least two established authorities we can see from Scripture that have one has evolved because of sin, the other initially established by God, and that was the family and then governments in cities. The family unit of a man and a wife, God created them and gave them that authority in chapters 1 and 2. And then the state ending up being existent because of these wandering men establishing cities, and we assume that there was government. And we know that this was all, again, under the providence of God in order to be certain that his creation would be ultimately cared for. I truly believe that we're seeing the wisdom of God then to delegate authority to different, listen carefully, spheres of authority. God delegating authority to different spheres of authority in order to maintain order 
and peace and to serve as a check and a balance for one another because of man's sinful tendency now to rebellion and his tendency to tyranny. Are you following me? So God is allowing in his providence these things to happen, but all the while he is ordaining it to care ultimately for his creation. And so we see at least these two clear spheres. The family existing, it's an authority in and of itself, God-given, and cities now existing that men have now given authority to other men. And yet we know all of it ultimately under the authority of the sovereign God. And so this term, sphere authority, is a creational principle, and it was first coined by a gentleman named Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch statesman and a Dutch theologian. He was a remarkable man who existed in the 19th century in Holland. He, he actually started a college. He was a statesman. He was in a political position, and he was a theologian, and he wrote numerous books. It's always amazing to me the brilliance of some men. And if you want to research a little bit about Kuiper, you can do it. I would encourage you to do it. But he was the one who came up with this concept of sphere authority. And it is now, even today, in the times that we're living now, being, again, rediscovered and discussed and studied and understood now in a new way of its importance. So those, there are more than three. There are three primary spheres of authority in Scripture. And I will tell you, and I will show you a diagram in a moment. Don't put it up yet. Don't put it up yet, none. It is the family, the church, and the state. Those are the three spheres that are primary in Scripture of authority. They overlap. They interface out of necessity. They are in mutual submission to some degree to one another through honor and recognition, or at least they are supposed to be. And they exist to bring a check and a balance, in a sense, keeping order and maintaining peace in creation. The two texts that speak most clearly of the church's place are Romans 1 and 1 Peter 2 in the sense of how we are to relate to the government. Matthew 22, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God. Jesus recognized the two spheres, state and church. Each are unique. The family has a unique authority. The church has a unique authority. The state has a unique authority given by God. The family is led by a husband and a wife together in team, leading the family, leading the home. The church is led by pastors, elders, shepherds who teach, feed, protect, govern, and rule over local churches. The state is led by elected officials or appointed officials who are to govern justly for the, over the affairs of men. And each has its own sphere. Each has its own authority. The church cannot rule over the family. The church cannot tell the family how to live, where to live, what to feed their children, 
what clothes to buy for their children, how to discipline their children, how to spend their money, what kind of car to buy. And it, sadly, some churches have tried to do this. The church has no legal right before God to ever overrule the right of a family. Of course, we know there's biblical instruction that's provided by the church in all of those areas to disciple and to encourage godliness, but ultimately the authority to determine what is best for a family lies within the family itself. And if the church violates that right or the conscience of the family, listen, it is exercising an illegal authority biblically. Reciprocally, the family recognizes the authority of both the church and the state, honoring those in authority in those spheres, submitting to leaders in the church as unto the Lord and submitting to government as unto the Lord. So the first default response of any believer is submission to authority. Always. And the family is expected to honor as long as the church doesn't violate and the state doesn't violate God's word or the conscience of the individuals of that family. The family does not have the right to tell the elders how to run the church. They try. No, not in our church. Or to lead the church. Yet at the same time, the elders of the church are in submission to one another and to the flock. So there's humility, there's reciprocity in terms of hearing and responding and honoring one another. But the elders ultimately have the responsibility because of the authority God has given them. And the same is true of every family's relationship to the state. We all pay taxes. We follow and we obey laws. We try to obey all of the laws. All the while living in submission to one another. We live in submission to the authority of the state. Because we know that it's for our good to do so. It's for our safety and for our peace and for order. And just as the family, listen now carefully, just as the family cannot dictate to the government how to govern, Beyond exercising our individual right to vote, we cannot dictate to the state how to govern. The state's authority cannot infringe upon the conscience or contradict the family's rights before God. <laughs> now that's going to be news to the state. But this is, we're talking about the way God has established authority and why he has done so. The church does not exist by the government's permit permission any more than the family was created by the state. It was God who created the family, and the church exists by God's order and under God's leadership. And sadly, there is much today confusion regarding what I'm saying to you right now and much compromise that is currently running through the church 
in this crisis that we're experiencing in our state and in our nation. And I am not criticizing other churches today. It is not my place to judge the leadership of another leader. But I would appeal to other leaders to consider the truths that I'm talking about today and to study them on their own. Because I do believe it will change the way they view much of what is going on. Put up the first slide for me, please, if you would. This, if you can see this diagram from wherever you are, is a diagram that would show you the sphere sovereignty where we understand that all are under the ultimate authority of Christ. And if you can see the, the circle, you see Christ is, I don't know what color that is, yellow. Christ is, is the yellow large circle, and within that are, is the state, is the church, is the family, is, is, is giving to benevolence or charities, schooling, business, and just culture and society at large. We see this is a biblical conviction that everything is ultimately under the sovereign authority of God. You know, the second next slide that I want you to see is a quote by Abraham Kuyper that he wrote regarding the truth of this slide that we have up right now. And it says this, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And I've actually heard uh, R.C. Sproul quote that uh, in a number of his teachings, but it was Kuiper who said it first. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, conversely, the next diagram will show you how the state today actually sees these truths. The state is now the yellow circle. And within that, we find the church, the family, and charities, and schools, and business, and society. Everything now in the, in the culture that we are currently living in, the state's mentality is that it all falls under their jurisdiction and ultimate authority. And so they have their hands as much as it can in all of it to varying degrees. And now I want to read a quote to you from a woman who was the chief justice of a Canadian Supreme Court. Compare this and contrast this with Kuiper's. The authority claimed by state written law touches upon all aspects of human life and citizenship and leaves no aspect of human experience unaffected by its claim to authority. This is what we are dealing with now in our own 21st century Western experience is where rather than obviously governments understanding that God is over all, which by the way is how this nation was founded by the Puritans, their influence, who escaped tyranny to establish this nation. Now today it is reverted again to the state now is Lord of all. And so we're going to tell you 
how to educate your kids, what they need to know. We're going to govern commerce. We're going to make you pay taxes on anything and everything that we can. You cannot change a garbage disposal without a permit in your own home legally. Did you know that? Everything now is under the jurisdiction of the state. Businesses are forced to adhere to every jot and tittle of state mandates to simply carry out cab business. And depending on the state, some are worse than others. And we happen to be living in one of the worst. And of the three spheres, the one that has the most potential to overreach is obviously that of the state. Why? Simply due to its power and its scope. And the history of, of mankind is one of tyrannical governments again and again and again, infringing upon the authority and the rights of both individuals and their families and the church. That's been the history of man. It's due to the state's vast um, authority and power. Because of that, too often the rights of individuals are squelched, crushed, or ignored because the state by its very nature is a coercive institution. It does what it does out of threat. That if you don't obey it, there is consequence. And initially, it was intended by God to keep peace and to keep order. And that's what Paul's teaching in Romans 13.1 and following is, is saying. The recognition of this tyrannical overreach potential was one of the primary concerns of the founders of the United States and its constitution at its birth. And so they then created these three co-equal yet separate branches of government that were meant to hold each other in check and to keep back the potential for coercion by the state so that not one branch could coerce and be overruling and overriding another. The brilliance of the founders. But there's something that's happening today that is equally as dangerous to me and probably more serious than this fact that the state has this potential for overreach when it so often, in fact, does uh, exercise, and that is that the church has abdicated its place in the world, and we have lost our position of authority. We've given it over. We've abdicated it, whatever verb you want to use. We've lost our voice. And so the concept separation of church and state is now understood to mean that the church needs to stay out of the state's business. Whereas initially that concept was given to us by the founders to ensure that the state would stay out of the church's business. Not only is the church to stay out of the public square, but our voice has been silenced now in most areas of morality and ethics, many of which were foundational to this nation in, their very, in its beginning. And the fact that it is now... Uh, expected to stay out of the public square has not only been expected, but it's mandated and legislated out of the public square increasingly in the last 50 years. 
And I talked about this a few weeks ago when I taught on this, this understanding of the kingdom now in a different way, that we are now dealing with a dualism in the church that is basically saying to the church, and the church has adopted this mentality, and it's rampant in the church, that we need to be faithful in the church, and we need to get church right, how we worship, how we do what we do as a church, how we build bigger and bigger churches, and how we can cater to the needs of our people. But what it ultimately is saying is that the jurisdiction of the Lord is, in the end is limited to the church. That that's all we should ever be concerned about is the church. And that out there is just going to go to hell, and we need to just not even think about it. But here we are now, all of a sudden, the, the, church, the, the state is saying to us, no, not only are you not to do this, but you have to do this. And because we have so abdicated our voice, and because we do not understand who we really are, we just simply go, okay, let me know when anything changes. This dualism in the church today believes in some vague way that God is, in fact, sovereign over all. And it, but ultimately, they would say, we would say God is in charge, but there's no application of the word of God to the culture or to the world around us. We have acquiesced to the world's demands. And we can have our, our beliefs, our pious beliefs in our heads and maybe in our own homes and in, in small privacy of our home, but do not bring it into the public square. And do not question what are you being told? And the church today does not have any desire nor any ability to respond to this because we've given it up. And it's afraid of appearing political. And it's afraid of, of appearing to be non-submissive and not to have a good witness, which is I'm hearing again and again and again. If we don't submit to the, what they're telling us, it's a bad witness. I say the opposite. I say when we stand up, that's the witness. And there's a hard attitude, and I'm going to talk about it in a moment. That is the prerequisite for it, lest you misunderstand me. And so now, as a result, the church has lost its saltiness. We have lost our voice. And we are becoming less and less of an influence in, in any way in our society. We are, as I said a few weeks ago, passionless, passive, and prayerless. Three deadly Ps. And this has resulted in our nation's gradual slide toward secularism. And what is now the accepted, listen, the accept, accepted spirituality of the day in our nation, which is neo-paganism. That's acceptable. Paganism is acceptable as a spirituality in our nation. But do not bring a sovereign God in any way, shape, or form into the public sphere without censure. So we've abandoned our sphere. This is my point of authority. We've lost the understanding of Genesis 1. We've lost the understanding of Romans 13, of Paul's point. For there is no authority except that 
ordained by God. Never in the history of our nation, never has the church been closed as it is now being closed. Even during the Spanish flu in 1918, it was closed for three months, from October to December. And even then, many churches never closed. Of course, we know this is being done in the name of health concerns. And do not misunderstand me. I know that this COVID is a real thing. And I know that many have gotten ill. And I know that many have died. But we also know the statistics that show us that the majority of those that have died were older and were already subject to other disease and were put in positions where they were actually exposed unduly many times. But it is existing. We know that. But the irony of it is, to me, is that what has been done is been done in the name of health concerns when, in fact, the church is and has always been the primary vessel of healing for society. That's where you would go when you were sick, to the church for prayer. Of course you go to doctors. Of course you thank God for medicines. But biblically, even as a believer, I am first to go to the other elders for prayer before I would do anything. I want to put a quote up for you by a man named Joe Boot, who is one of the guys that I read much. And his quote is, I think, just brilliant. It's kind of small. If you can read it, I'll read it to you. I don't have it on my phone. I'm going to leave the the screen for a moment. If it were in fact, now listen carefully, if it were in fact the church's primary mandate to keep everyone safe from all risk, then the persecuted churches and communist and Islamic nations today are dangerously irresponsible for continuing to meet and develop underground movements because all such action exposes their congregates to extreme risk. Perhaps those Christians have something profoundly significant in mind in terms of the overall well-being of the church of Jesus Christ that makes trusting the sovereign God with the ordinary risks of life more important than the illusions of safety. We've always supported the underground churches in China. They are directly in violation of the state's mandate in China. With what right do they do that? The right that they understand that they are under God and obedient to God first. What is our responsibility today? We already have settled it. The Bible is clear that God is the sovereign over all, the ultimate sovereign, and that only he has authority. Anyone that exercises authority is given it by God. The family and the church do not owe their existence to the state, nor do they derive their internal sphere of law from the state. 
Each is independent from the state and are not subservient to the state. So due to this, God-given authority that we have as the church of Jesus Christ, not only are we able, now here, listen carefully, but we must speak to our government when they have overstepped their sphere of authority. Not only are we able to do it, but we have a responsibility under God to do it, to say, no, that's enough. Just like a husband would say to a church, get out of my family's business in the name of Jesus. Thank you. In love and in honor. We have a responsibility to say, no, that's enough. In 1 Timothy 3, 14, I won't have you turn there if time to save time. Paul says that the church, listen to this quote, the church is the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. The authority of the church in Paul's mind was without question great. Foundational, fundamental, essential to the well-being of creation. And in 1 Timothy 3, he said, that's why you would lift up holy hands and you would pray for those that are in places of authority. 1 Timothy, he says, 3, 14 through 16. I'm sorry, that's 1 Timothy 2. He says this, 1 and 2. He says, lift up holy hands and pray. Why do we do that? Because we have a, a sphere of authority that recognizes its place. And so we pray for our government and our leaders that they would have wisdom to exercise their authority within their sphere with justice and with righteousness. It isn't a call to just simply bow our knee to them, regardless of what they're asking or saying, but to say to them, we honor you, but when you cross into the realm that is not yours, we will tell you, you must stop. Not out of rebellion. In humility, but with deep conviction of what is importantly true. And it isn't just so the church can meet. It's for the well-being of society. It's for the well-being of cities. It's for the well-being of what God's intention and purpose is for people in cities, in regions. Daniel's example, and oh man, I wish I could impact this, but I won't have time. Daniel's example, he's my hero in all of Scripture. In Babylon, his example in Babylon is the template for all godly behavior when confronted with the state's tyranny. Daniel 6, read it when you get home, verses 6 through 10. They were jealous of Daniel, the other leaders in Babylon. So they went to the king and they said, let's put an edict out that you cannot pray. Punishable by death. And the king, being the goofiness that he was, said, okay, let's do that, not realizing that he was setting up Daniel. Daniel, when the edict came down, what did he do? He went home and he stood 
in front of an open window, and he prayed three times a day just as he always did. Out of rebellion? No. Out of obedience to God. Let me ask you again. Out of rebellion? Say it. No. Out of obedience to God. And what happened to him? He was thrown into the lion's pit, and God kept him. He honored the king, always honored the king. He always honored the king, yet he refused to bow down when it meant compromising his faith. Or, listen, abdicating his role, sovereignly given him by God in his office in Babylon. We have thrown away our authority. And I want to say to you that I truly believe today we are living in a time when the state is overreaching greatly. Again, to say their jurisdiction does protect us. It is to protect us from criminals, from the negligence of of criminals and of people charges those who, who violate the law, who disregard life and disregard property, at least it's supposed to. But this, this authority that the state wields, because it is so powerful, must be exercised with justice and with fairness. And in the case of COVID, in the case of what we're going through right now, originally the unknown danger was such that no one knew exactly what we were dealing with how serious it truly was, how dangerous it truly was, how contagious it truly was. It was said to be a pandemic. pandemic. And so when the government initially, the government initially required the shelter at home, we all obeyed, and it, we were told it was to flatten the curve. We are now five months into this, and now I will say to you that it is unclear Really, what is accurately true regarding this? What is the danger? Is there a danger? How serious is the danger? Is no longer really clear. It's highly debated. What medicines are truly effective? I talked to my doctor this week. It was a phone call. I said to her, I just want you to know, if the vaccine comes down, I'm not getting it. She said, neither am I. I said, tell me about hydroxychloroquine, this debate I'm reading about. She goes, I'm just going to tell you all I know is that we cannot in any way prescribe it because we will lose our license in California. And if a pharmacist prescribes it or sells it, they will lose their license. It's illegal to prescribe in California. And yet there are numerous accounts, whether it be true or not, I'm not sure how do we know, that they are actually helping, it's actually helping people substantially in other parts of the world. The question now is, what are we dealing with? What's true? How accurate are the statistics? Is the state now doing what it is doing for political reasons or health reasons? And are we now dealing with a biblical illegality overreach that have violated now the consciences 
of individuals and of families and of many, many churches. The second part that we're dealing with now is the fact that Paul makes the point in Romans 13 that rulers are to be a terror for that which is uh, uh, not, uh, excuse me, rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad conduct. That now has been reversed, it seems like, in our society. The government is allowing what they're calling protests, which are actually many times riots. They're allowing that on the streets, and they are not allowing churches to meet. Fines have been levied against business owners who have tried to skirt the requirements in order to survive. My daughter, who is a hairdresser, told us that they levied $10,000 fines on women who opened their salons uh, in the city a couple of weeks ago. $10,000 fine for cutting hair. Many of them were given to single moms trying to survive. Fined $10,000 for cutting hair. That's unjust. Homeowners protecting their property from rioters are now having charges filed against them. Unbiblical impositions on the church of no singing, no communion, no gathering, no Bible studies even in this state have now been brought down in edicts and mandates. To me, this is as serious as anything that we're dealing with is the reversal of what is just and what is unjust in terms of the exercise of authority of the state. Now, I want you to notice as I'm coming in for a landing that we are not talking about a constitutional argument at all. That's being fought at another level by other men. And I don't know if you're familiar with the church in Southern California, John MacArthur, who have actually said, we will stay open, we will continue to meet, and now they are in court. And they currently are meeting legally, as we are today, because of the judgment of, this, of the court in his case, which will eventually probably come before the Supreme Court of the United States. It's a constitutional issue, and that is being fought. That's not what I'm talking about today. Even though the Constitution and the freedom in the First Amendment comes from the sovereignty of God in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as well. The freedom for religion, any freedom, originates in God. But that is not the argument that we are bringing. That's not what I'm saying today. What we are talking about is a deep conviction that we believe is biblical in obedience to the Word of God and the place that God has established the church to exercise authority. So how are we going to move forward as Capital City Church? We will continue to meet indoors as a church to worship God, to teach his word, to take communion together and to fellowship as he commanded us to do. Nothing supersedes that. We are not doing it out of rebelliousness or out of emotion or trying to make a political statement. But we are doing it out of a conviction of obedience to God. 
We recognize the authority of the state, but we now believe that we must exercise a godly dishonor of what we believe is a biblically illegal overreach by their authority. We will honor the conscience of every member of our church. If you choose to wear a mask or not wear a mask, if you choose to attend or to stay at home, if you choose to sit outside, if you choose to separate yourself in here, whatever you choose to do, we honor that and respect that. We will take as many precautions as we are able to accommodate your concerns within our conviction of obedience. And the decisions that we are going to make will be governed going forward by what we believe is best for the church and best in terms of somehow living out in obedience this authority, this mandate, this office, this authority, this sphere that we've been given by God to speak the truth to the, to the city and to the nation. So that's where we are. And uh, I know that I said a lot today. In fact, this week what we're going to do is we're going to send out a paper that I wrote that will contain much of what I said to you today in a paper and a video that we put together that will, again, just briefly give a synopsis of it. I'm very welcome to dialogue with you. Matt and, and Kevin would be as well. Uh, in the paper that I'm sending out, there are a number of footnotes of articles that I strongly encourage you to read, things that I've referred to, things that I have quoted from today, texts, biblical texts that support what I'm saying to you. And again, to know our heart is not one of being rebellious. It's not to wave, you know, the, our, our finger at the, at the state, thumb our nose at the state. That's not what we're doing. We are trying to live in obedience to God, all the while honoring the conscience and caring for the flock that God has given us. It's not an easy thing to do, trust me. It's been very challenging. We have never bent our knee to the state. Even the two weeks when we shut down, when we felt like there was possibly someone in our church who had been, that we knew there was someone in our church that might have been exposed to COVID about two months ago, we closed down for two weeks. We didn't do it to bend our knee to the government. We did it out of concern for the church, out of love for the flock. That's what we have tried to do the whole time. So here we are, and that's where, that's where our hearts are. Amen.